0: Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, This parable is in the context of Jesus' instruction on the coming of the kingdom. In chapter 17, we looked at the coming of the Son of Man in clouds of glory and great power, uh, coming to set all things right, to avenge his elect, and to bring about the visible manifestation of his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus taught us that that coming will be sudden, it'll be unexpected, it'll be at any moment. And yet there are indications throughout Scripture that it will be a long delay. First, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He will go to the cross, he will be beaten, he will be rejected, he will be shamed, he will be crucified. We also know from Scripture that we as members of his body will also suffer with him. As Jesus reminded of us, us if we seek to save our lives, we will lose it. If we are to follow him, we must take up our cross and follow him. The scripture teaches that if we long to be glorified with him, we first must suffer with him. And now he's talking about a very real condition. Suffering in this life, waiting for the coming of the Lord, is exhausting. The pain of the body, the continual illnesses as well as the suffering of the soul, the relentless lies, the abandonment of friends, the hatred, the scorn, the ridicule. Oftentimes, persecutions include violence and torture, imprisonment, and death. We all have in us the memory of Eden. We were created for the garden of God's delights. We were made for connection with God and with each other. We are made to bond with one another in love, to serve God safely and in freedom with our gifts, in fellowship with one another. That's been broken. We feel that loss keenly. The devil is continually attacking us. We long for connection, but we hate and distrust those who are different than we are. Cain still hates Abel, and Abel still fears Cain. So we tend to form tribes. We say to ourselves, if only we had more power, more influence, more authority, if only we could take care of those people. And we repeat what happens in Genesis 4 over and over again. We build cities, we wall them off, we separate from one another. We say in our hearts, if only everyone listened to my tribe, my party, my people, then we can overcome injustice. We can usher in the golden age and we can prosper. It started very early at the Tower of Babel. They put together bricks and mortar and they built a tower whose top will reach to heaven. In contrast to that is Abraham in the very next chapter who received a promise from God and believed God and waited. But we want to rush things along. As long as I can remember every single election Everyone running for office runs on the same platform. Vote for me and I'll bring about change. And as long as I've lived, no matter who we vote for, everything is exactly the same. Because lies, corruption, power-hungry, wicked, corrupt men are universal. The scripture warns us to flee from the things of this world. It warns us not to put our trust in cultures or promises of the rulers of this age. It warns us not to divide over tribal loyalties, but to serve together in the unity of true faith. For we only have one king, one savior, one ruler, the Lord Jesus He is over every kingdom of this world. He's over every culture. He reigns on high. God is placing all things under his feet. But things are not there yet. We live between the ages. We long for Eden. It's been promised. It's been accomplished on the cross. But it has not yet come. Christ is still gathering his people together. So this time on earth, Jesus tells us, is a time of waiting, a time of crying out. But the temptation of the devil will always be this. He says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you'll only bow down and worship me. It comes a little more subtle. He says, you know, if you elect the right people, we can overcome injustice and wickedness. What we need is better politicians, better men, stronger masculine men to take control and have dominion. We need more money. We need more people. We need more loyalty. And then we can build a tower whose top will reach to heaven. Because if it's built with the tools and the bricks and the mortars and the schemes and the strategies of this world, it's Babel, not the kingdom of God. In the past ten years or so it's been very trendy among evangelical conservative Christians to talk about Christianity having a masculine feel, and what we need is more strong men, more masculine men. John Piper said Christianity has a masculine feel. And there are whole coalitions dedicated to making men more manly, stronger, powerful, men with quivers full of children taking dominion over all the nations of the earth. It sounds really good. And they assume that's what Christianity is. And they tell you that to reject that vision is to reject Christ. But Jesus never likens his people to a powerful army building kingdoms on this earth. The elect are not likened to the rich, the powerful, the elite, the strong, the wise. Here, the elect are likened to a desperate widow. Struggling under the weight of injustice, lacking the power to do anything about it, and all she has is persistence in prayer. The judge is unjust. The widow very clearly is a a symbol of the people of God, but the judge is not a symbol of God, for the judge is unjust and God cannot be unjust. He doesn't represent God, he's wicked. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about law. He doesn't care about men. He doesn't care about anything. He's consumed by his own self-interest and cares nothing about justice. But the widow is persistent. Day after day after day after day. People would have mocked her victim mentality. Oh, she's just always playing the victim. Says the unjust judge who just wants her to go away. Until finally the judge says, holy cow, this woman is exhausting me. What do I got to do to get her to shut up? She says, all right, I'll give her justice just to get her to keep her mouth quiet. And here's the point. If an unjust judge who doesn't care about anyone but himself will give justice to a widow just to close her mouth, how much more? will our Father in Heaven hear our prayers? Unlike the unjust judge, our Father in Heaven loves His people with continuous, eternal, infinite, unchanging love. Notice here, Jesus uses a rare word for Him. He calls His people the elect, the chosen ones of God, that God looked down in history and saw us and chose us out of all the families of the earth. And yes, he created us, he foreordained us, he predestined us. But every time the scripture calls about election, it's emphasizing God's love. His love that flows from within himself. And if God loves his elect with that sort of undying, infinite, unchanging love, how much more apt is he to hear our prayers than an unjust judge who just wants to get us to shut up? He's chosen us from before the foundation of the world. He sent His Son into the world to die for each one of His sheep by name. He knew your name when He was hanging on that cross. Psalm 121 says He doesn't get tired. He doesn't faint. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's not looking the other way. Since everything about God is the opposite of this judge, What will hinder him from coming in judgment to avenge his people? That's the point of the parable. What's the purpose of it? Why did Jesus tell that parable? Well, Luke actually tells us so that we will pray and not lose heart. The scripture calls us to pray persistently. Not because God is impressed with or forced to act by our persistence. That's a pagan view. Remember Mount Carmel when the veil worshippers thought they could get God to pay attention to them by jumping around and cutting themselves and shouting and performing all the rituals right. And Elijah, one simple prayer, acknowledging God as his father and God heard him. No, we don't pray persistently in order to convince God to be on our side. We pray persistently to remind ourselves that the God we worship is not a pagan idol. He's not an unjust judge with better things to do. He's a God who loves us, who has chosen us, who is more angry at injustice than we are, who loves us greater than any father can love his child. We pray because God desires our fellowship. He will certainly avenge his elect. He will certainly defend them from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul tells us in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? We hold on to this by faith, because honestly, we don't see it yet. We hold on to it because we know that God cannot lie. God cannot destroy or turn his back on those for whom Christ died, for God is not divided. God cannot turn his back on his own son, for there is only one God. And God cannot turn away and ignore injustice, for that's contrary to his nature. So why the delay? Why the delay? He says in verse number 8, he says he, he will avenge his elect, though he bears long with, it, long with them. That is, he bears long with those who are persecuting the elect. He, he's, he's long-suffering. He's patient with those who do wrong. Peter explains it like this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I can't explain to you all the reasons why God delays. All I can do is tell you what the scripture says. And that's this God's vengeance is always perfect. God's vengeance will never contradict his mercy or his love or his wisdom. God's holiness, righteousness, mercy, love, and justice are not moods of God or different parts of God or passions that God has. For God is one in unity, in simplicity. Our justice is never like that, ever. In the history of the world, waves of righteousness that overtake communities are just as destructive as waves of godlessness. Every time Christians have been successful in gaining unchecked political power every single time, it has always ended with burnings at the stake, mass hangings, torture chambers, armies. Because if you're going to build a righteous nation, you need to crush the sinners and eventually find out that it's not so easy to stop once you start. Oliver Cromwell marches through Ireland getting revenge on the Papists and slaughtering hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children. You can see the scars throughout Ireland. The Inquisition burned and tortured its way through Europe, setting up God's kingdom on earth. The Puritans drove dissenters out of their homes through blizzards, exiled and executed those who got in their way, and finally burned itself out in the Salem witch trials when they finally woke up and said, what are we doing Jesus never calls his people an avenging army. He calls his people a persistent widow. Lay down your arms. Wait for the avenging of the Son of Man. Have the humility to think soberly. The power to avenge is not given to us. On this earth we still strive for justice with the gifts and the voice that God has given us. For God has called us to do that. To reflect his nature. But don't confuse it with the kingdom of God. Because that's the path to death and destruction. We aren't looking to bring about a Christian nation or usher in a golden age. We're the persistent widow crying out day and night until the one to whom the kingdom belongs appears. It's not us. Practically speaking, what it looks like is Romans 12. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but we are all members, all members do not have the same function. We've become so untrusting, so angry, so divisive. We used to be able to say, hey, you know what? I disagree with you. Now they're enemies to be crushed, reviled, destroyed, and buried underground. Paul says don't think so highly of yourselves. You aren't the son of man coming in clouds of glory to set everything right. You're just a guy doing the best you can in a cursed world just like everyone else. Crying out for justice and love and mercy like the rest of us. We're all the persistent widow crying out to God for mercy. None of us have the monopoly on truth. That's the point of Romans 12. We're all members of one another. We're not all the same. We all have different gifts. But today every believer believes himself to be an expert on economics, on history, on viruses, on space programs, on sustainable energy, on health care. And they will not bear with anyone who says, you know what, you might be wrong on that. They saw it on YouTube. They know they're right. Maybe it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know that. I know that someday Jesus will come and set everything right. In the meantime, how can I make your life a little bit easier? Or maybe you could say, hey, tell me your perspective. Tell me what you're thinking. When it comes to the kingdom of God, we're persistent widows, reminding ourselves through continual prayer that we don't have all the answers. We don't have the power. We don't have any recourse and nothing we can do except cry out to the Lord. But we also have what God has revealed revealed to us. He is coming. He will set it right. It will be perfect when he does. Not one of his sheep will be lost. Not one will ever be able to accuse him of injustice or cruelty because when he comes in judgment, it will be absolutely perfect. None of us can do that. And when we recognize that, then maybe we can breathe again. And maybe we can be okay not knowing everything. Maybe we can turn off YouTube and our favorite news channel and our favorite radio program and actually go outside and look at the flowers and talk to our neighbors who have a different perspective than we have. Maybe we can learn something new from someone we've never talked to before. My favorite TV detective is Vera Stanhope. If you haven't watched Vera, you should. She says to her sergeant all the time, oh, get over yourself. It's my favorite line. Paul says, don't think so highly of yourselves. Don't think lower of yourselves than God does either. That's a mistake. Paul talks about all the gifts you have been given tremendous gifts, filled with the Spirit of Christ. You are God's loved child under God's care and protection and the apple of his eye. Your voice matters. Your personhood matters. Who you are matters. But don't think higher of yourself than you ought. What you aren't is the judge of heaven and earth. You aren't the arbiter of all that is right and proper. You aren't the expert on every single subject. When it comes right down to it, there is far, far, far more that we don't know than what we do know. A judge that enters his courtroom already thinking he knows everything about the case and doesn't need to listen to any other perspective is not a just judge, he's a tyrant. And so it is in all of life. We don't know everything. We know a very, 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 very little about very, very little. When I was about 13 years old, I had to decide whether I wanted to change piano teachers or not. My piano teacher had told my parents that she taught me everything that she could, recommend I go see someone else. And I went to Dad and I said you know, Dad, I know everything about the piano that I need to know. Do I need to go back and do lessons? Dad says, well, it depends on what you want. He says, if you want to play with the New York Philharmonic, then you probably need about 20 more years of lessons. So I decided to listen to my father and go see this other guy. What's he going to teach me? After about two lessons, I realized I knew absolutely nothing about music. And the more I learned about music, the more I realized I didn't know that much about music experts in every subject will tell you the same thing the more they learn about a subject the more they realize they don't know anything about a subject those who say they know everything about a subject are the ones that know actually very very little so that's why the scripture says walk humbly with your god we're widows crying out not the experts If we walk humbly with God, crying out to him day and night, waiting for him because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Then we'll find a place to use what we do know. In humility and kindness and love. Paul says, you've been given gifts, use those gifts. We will know that all of those who are in Christ have gifts and abilities that they've been given to them by God himself. And God calls us to listen to each other. Why? Because we're all different. None of us have the monopoly on everything. And so we're to talk and to listen to each other with different perspectives. So that we can all be built up into the image of Christ. Together. So use those gifts. Don't silence and condemn someone else's gifts. Because we aren't ushering in the kingdom of God. We aren't the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. Throughout the rest of this chapter, chapter 18, if you read through it, look at who the elect are compared to. In our text, they're compared to resourceless widows. He goes on to compare us to tax collectors, the worst of all the sinners. Then he goes on to compare us to little children. And then he compares us to someone who's given away everything and is absolutely poor. A person who's given away everything and is completely poor has lost his standing in community, his social group, his backup plan, his culture, everything about himself. In other words, those that the elect are compared to by Jesus are the out group. Those without strength, those who are not of this world. We'll look at that throughout the rest of this chapter as Luke segues into the rest of this. This is what it means to think soberly. But honestly, all of us get so consumed with sticking it to the other guy. We get so consumed with tearing down one another, blindly following our own people, that we forget what we're really called to do. Micah 6, 8. You know, they had the same problem in Micah's day. The two groups that fought worse than anything in Micah's day were the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both of them anathematizing each other, cursing each other, calling each other the, the enemies of God. Were the true people of God. That enmity carried up until the day of Jesus. Samaritans in Jerusalem. In Micah's day, it was going on. And one thing Micah did was he rebuked both of them. Because the one thing they actually had in common, both Judah and Israel. They stole from one another. They lied about one another. They cheated each other. They committed fornication. They abused their children. They sold their daughters. And Micah says, he's shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Instead, we love to exalt our own strength. We love to think of ourselves and people like us as the wise ones, the good ones, the strong ones. And if only everyone got on board with our program, and we missed something beautiful. We missed the communion of the saints. Because as Galatians says, we're too busy biting and devouring one another. And we need to remember that when we were without strength, Christ died For the ungodly. Our life is in him. And the only strength we have comes from him. And he will hold us accountable. To how we use that strength. The strength to use whatever gifts he gives us. To edify and to encourage one another. To stand together with the people of God. To refuse backbiting and slandering. And devouring one another. To walk humbly with God. For what do we have that we did not receive? When we were without strength. Christ died for us. That's you and that's me. And we are still today, even as believers, without any strength of our own. All we have is given to us. The problem is we want a strength that hasn't been given to us. We want the strength to speed the kingdom along. We want the strength to fix everything, to rid the world of evil, evildoers, to usher in the kingdom, to stick it to the bad guys, to be as gods, knowing good and evil. Remember the angels even asked God when it was evident that the field was planted with wheats and tares, they said, should we go pull the tares out? God said, no, don't pull the tares out because while pulling the tares out, you might get some wheat. God knows when to pull the tares out. When we do it, we'll always get the wheat. We don't have that strength. We don't have that wisdom. We never will. But here's the strength we do have if we ask for it. We have the strength to put on an apron and wash each other's feet. We have the strength to walk alongside the hurting, to sit with the wounded and the oppressed. We have the strength to give a glass of cold water, to visit the sick, to give food to the hungry. We have the strength to cry out to God day and night, persistent in prayer. And we have the strength to wait for him if we'll simply ask God for it. Jesus had already taught this in Luke chapter 11. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If a judge being unjust will give justice just to get the widow to shut up, how much more will the father avenge his people to call out, that call out on him day and night, his people that are the apple of his eye? And if we believe that, If we truly believe that, then we can stop trying to do what only God can do. Leave it in his hands and get about the business we can do. Use our gifts to the advantage and welfare of our church, our community, our families. Live in kindness and compassion and peace with those that are different than us. And Jesus asks at the end of all of this, when the Son of Man returns, will he find this kind of faith on the earth? Will he find widows crying out and waiting for God's justice? Or will he find people building the Tower of Babel? Will it be the faith in the promise given to Abraham? Or will it be the faith of Babylon in the kingdoms of this world that consume us that fill us with rage and hatred and isolation and seek to destroy us and pull us apart, will we be followers of Babel or will we be followers of Abraham? This is what Jesus is saying. The adornment of a meek and quiet spirit is of great value to God. And that only comes by faith. The question is not really Jesus is not really saying, well, I don't think there's going to be any faith when I come back. He's challenging each one of us. What kind of faith will you have when he returns? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, without your spirit, we cannot stand. Jesus, you have said, abide in me, for without me, you can do nothing. And we confess that we can do nothing. And yet, Father, with you, we can do all things that you have commanded us to do. Give us that strength. Fill us with that spirit and cause us to walk in newness of life. Forgive us our sins. Unite our hearts together with love. In Jesus' name, amen.